Okay, welcome everybody, uh, and thanks for coming tonight. My name is Mike Savage. I'm um, head of the Department of Sociology here at the LSE, also co-director of the International Inequalities Institute. And um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome tonight's speaker, who has, you know, has you've probably come across her in the last week or two on the media, because she's been uh, doing the Radio 4 Book of the Week and extensively reviewed, talking about her book, which will be the focus of tonight's discussion, Respectable, the experience of class. I mean, Lindsay is, is one of the people who's, who's doing a fantastic job in sense moving between social science of inequality in class and a kind of popular impact and engagement world. And her, her work brings together in a very imaginative way um, experiential questions about understanding social mobility along with uh, very deep learning of academic issues around the subject. So it's a, very, it's, a, it's a fantastic book, very easy to read book. I read it in one sitting and uh, today's lecture should be a real treat. So the plan will be for Lindsay to talk for about 40, 45 minutes, and then there'll be a chance for question and answer. Um, and you can also purchase a copy of the book outside and get a signature if you wish. So without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Lindsay. Thanks, Rick. Can everybody hear me all right? I'm <coughs> convinced I'm too short for the microphone. So, <laughs> um, thank you to Mike and for the uh, sociology department for asking me to uh, come here and speak today. Um, not least because um, the work that uh, Mike and his colleagues have done on the Great British Class Survey and the social class in the 21st century book um, have been so influential um, on um, particularly sort of later drafts of, of, of this book. Um, it's kind of given so much of the kind of the, the factual and the data kind of backbone to some of the ideas that I wanted to talk about in the book. Uh, and also sort of very handily from my perspective, you know, came out, uh, you know, as a very, again, as a very widely reviewed and popular Pelican book just a few months before mine was due to come out and, and sort of really sort of helped to, to bring class back. Um, back on the map and back into the conversation. So um, I hope I can sort of add to that in some way today and um, really just kind of explain um, some of the motivations for wanting to write a book about class, you know, at this particular time. Um, so my book is called uh, Respectable, The Experience of Class. Um, I had a lot of trouble trying to uh, decide what to call the book and I'm still not very happy with the subtitle <laughs> because it suggests that there's a definitive experience of class. Um, I wanted to call it an experience of class, but they said it was possibly a bit too vague for that. Uh, so the experience of class I've kind of had to learn to live with, and I must emphasise that although my book is from a personal perspective, I really, really don't um, believe uh, anybody has got the definitive answer to, to, to class because it's such uh, a complex and kind of multifarious um, Concept and it's it, it's very very concept uh, very very complicated as it's lived, um, and the respectable element really is mostly um, influenced by Mel and Kim, which is a very age-specific um, reference. Uh, they were a Cockney pop duo from the 1980s who had a fantastic song. Then the chorus went, um, "Take or leave us, please believe us. We are never going to be respectable." So I thought that really summed it up. Um, so why respectable? Why did I want to write this book? Um, really, I wanted to write about uh, the experience and the significance of 
undertaking social mobility uh, in a context of wider social inequality. Um, you know, it, it so turns out that, you know, certainly in the last 15 years or so, and particularly uh, in the last f uh, five or six years or so, um, social mobility <laughs> has just come to be a very sort of uh, standard uh, phrase used by um, uh, all parties, all politicians, uh, but, I mean, politicians of any sort of political stripe. Um, just uh, as, as automatically a good thing, social mobility has to be a good thing because obviously um, it's terrible. It's terrible to be working class. You must want to be middle class, and anyway, we're all middle class now. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. Um, and um, social mobility um, has kind of obsessed me more personally for, for quite a long time because it was something that I sort of underwent and experienced myself. Um, and I wanted to write about how individuals uh, suffer while they're undergoing that process because society is unequal. And for individuals to kind of push against a broader structure, even when they're encouraged to do that, um, is quite a psychologically difficult thing to do. Um, and individuals, not always, of course, you know, I mean, some people are kind of, you know, exceptionally, um, you know, resilient and adaptable and, uh, you know, very easygoing. Um, but a lot of individuals, and there's a lot of testimony to this, do suffer um, quite severe emotional and psychological stress while they're undergoing this process that they're told they have to undergo, or at least aspire to undergo, in order to be fully accepted in society. Um, I also wanted to write about respectability as a kind of as a kind of so as a kind of condition, for want of a better word, um, the kind of maintenance of respectability within working class communities, and this idea of, of respectable as against rough, and, and respect the rough kind of respectable divide is something that you know sociologists have sort of examined quite a lot, and you know they're quite sort of taken at face value are both quite dodgy words but I wanted to look at the idea of respectability both as a way of individuals preserving dignity and self-respect on their terms but also as a way of trying to get closer towards uh, the values of dominant society and therefore closer towards wider acceptance in their view. Um, I also wanted to write you know because because again unfortunately because of this Social, social mobility process that kind of I'll explain a little bit later how you know how and why I underwent this process but but I wanted to sort of explore more how class itself how the lived experience of class has quite pernicious psychological effects um, particularly on those who are kind of at the receiving end of all the negative messages about basically what class you're supposed to be and uh, I just wanted to show also how social mobility exposes people further to those pernicious effects because it reveals lots of things about the myth of meritocracy, the fact that we don't have a meritocracy, and also about the way we take in all the signals of class, all the signals of the class that, that, that we live in and the class that we're supposed to uh, look up to, for want of a better word, and how we internalise our class of origin in relation to that up to that point. Um, <clears throat> so I've called this place and times um, a local habitation after um, um, Richard Hoggart. Uh, Richard Hoggart is one of the greatest kind of influences on anything that I've tried to do in my writing. Um, he was writing in the 1950s as a kind of not so much as a sociologist, more as a kind of 
sort of cultural ethnographer, for want of a better word. And um, I sort of, without explicitly wanting to write, write just like him or to write exactly about the types of things that, that, that he was writing about in the 50s, I wanted to really, really set my book and um, the kind of the story of social mobility and the story of class in the last 40 years or so in a specific time and place, uh, just as a way of sort of anchoring it, really. And, you know, I, you know part of this whole sort of social mobility obsession that, that, I, that I have is partly to do with the fact that I grew up and was educated um, up to the age of 16 on a, on a peripheral estate um, outside Birmingham, um, and the, that was the sort of the place and the times was this kind of very endless-seeming conservative government um, that went all the way through. They were elected when I was three, and they finally were got rid of when I was 21, so that's pretty much my entire childhood and adolescence and early adulthood. Um, and that feeling that uh, the Tories were never going wa- to go away, I think, had a massive um, effect on people's lived experience at that time, um, particularly if you were living um, in a working-class um, environment, a working-class community. Um, and I was very much aware of, despite being only eight or nine, was very, very much aware of the significance of the miners' strike in 1984 and five. Um, I was quite, um, quite obsessed with um, the Cold War and the fear of the bomb what I regard really to be a kind of quite a deliberate sort of program of, of, of terror, of keeping everybody absolutely terrified through the threat of dying as a result of the bomb, um, to the extent that, uh, you know, I still believe now that, that, that uh, people, who, people who really believe that they were going to die should basically retrospectively sue the government at that time for trauma. It was, it was that horrible. Um, but putting up, trying to put all these, um, trying to put these experiences into some kind of social and, and political and cultural context, you know, I needed help to do that. Um, and, and reading um, the uses of literacy, which is Richard Hoggart's kind of major work, really, um, helped to do that for me. Um, it was written in 1957, um, at a point where Hoggart was, he was just about to turn 40, and he was writing about his childhood in Leeds in the 1930s. Um, a quite extremely impoverished childhood because both of his parents had died by the time he was eight. Um, and he and his brother and sister were all split up between various relatives because no one, sorry, no one relative could afford to keep all three of them, so he went to live with his nan. Um, and uh, he was kind of chosen uh, by his elementary school teacher to sit um, a scholarship exam um, for one of the grammar schools in Leeds and this is before the age of the mass grammar schools before the sort of post-war period where everybody or more or less everybody was sat um, for the 11 plus to kind of sort them between grammar schools and, and secondary schools this was a point when grammar schools were still effectively as, as sort of had as minor a place in the education system as, as, as private schools and so um, Hoggart's experience was extremely rare at that time um, and yet um, despite the kind of rarity of his experience, that the fact that he took this scholarship and then he went to, uh, he went to grammar school and then he uh, got into Leeds University and, uh, and then became uh, an extramural studies teacher at Hull University, but basically entered the world of academia from this extremely 
unlikely background. Um, kind of, it seemed to be a story about precisely those effects that I was talking about in the first couple of in the first couple of slides about the uh, serious um, psychological um, adjustment that an individual has to make uh, in order to. Uh, in order to achieve the kind of results that are normal for somebody from a, from a, a relatively more privileged background. Um, and in a lot of ways, the uses are literally still now, I mean, to people younger than me also, is, is it feels, when it's read, extremely relevant um, to, to anybody who's gone through anything remotely, uh, any remotely a similar process. Um, so something written about... Uh, Leeds in the 1930s seemed to felt very, very resonant to me, having grown up outside Birmingham in the 1980s. Um, so, I mean, is the use of literacy? What is it? <laughs> um, I'm not a sociologist, and Richard Hoggart wasn't a sociologist. Um, yet, Hoggart um, has been incredibly, Hoggart's writing has been incredibly influential. Um, on uh, many, many, many um, British, and, and, and uh, not just British, but, 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 all, but many, many sociologists, particularly those who believe that culture uh, and the way we kind of inter internalise cultural signals uh, and the way we kind of live culture are all incredibly important ways of sort of, of, of viewing society, um, at least as important, if not more, than kind of economic relationships um, in terms of class. So I think it's a mixture of all these things, and that's one of the things that makes it so valuable, really. Um, it's, it's part sociology, it's part an ethnography, part autobiography. And he also basically at the same time invented cultural studies because um, he was really uh, one of the first people or the first person to take utterly normal things uh, that were experienced and enjoyed by the vast majority of society at that point, because in the 50s, I think, I think something like 70 to 75% of people could be described as or described themselves as working class. So he was talking about working class things, the things of working class life, um, in a serious way as the things of, you know, as the things and the culture of, 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 of upper middle class life at a time when that was almost unheard of. Um, so he talked about, you know, he talked about tin peaches and tin salmon, and he talked about catalogue clubs and he talked about club singers, um, and all these things had versions in my childhood. Sixty years later, you know, he talks about he talks about the bins in Leeds having uh, having been full of tins, uh, empty salmon tins and empty peaches tins and empty tin pineapple tins on a Sunday tea time, and that's basically exactly what we had for Sunday tea time sixty years later. Um, and those sorts of those sorts of things just just seemed not to have lost their freshness and not to have lost their relevance at all. Um, so it's a kind of um, it, it's a, it's a very important personal document of, of of a time and place. But the importance of it is that it's focused on and uh, you know I was trying to distinguish before between you know whether my book was going to be called An Experience of Class or The Experience of Class. Now, his book is focused on an experience, his experience of class. But he does it so well and he does it so closely that it has this universality about it. And so he's writing it about an experience of class, but also, to a great extent, it was my experience of class as well. And it was millions of... All the millions of people who've read his book ever since then feel like it's their experience of class as well. 
And so it doesn't matter that it's Hoggart's own account. Um, it's got this much, much wider resonance because of the way he highlights the, the fact that social structures impinge on our individual consciousness and on community consciousness as well, and neighbourhood consciousness in terms of, uh, you know, he writes about a specific neighbourhood, um, you know, and a specific neighbourhood with, with, with a bunch of very, very similar and, and very sort of class-specific um, characteristics. So that's, the, that's why the uses of literacy would feel so important to somebody who's 60 and 70 and 80 years younger than him. And I've got two quotes here from him, not, not from the uses of literacy, but from his introduction to um, Orwell, The Road to Wigan Pier, that he wrote in the late 80s, at a point when it was exactly just as relevant as now and, ex- and, and as relevant it was when he, when he first wrote The Uses of Literacy. And the first is, <coughs> every decade we shiftily declare we've buried class and every, de- every decade the coffin stays empty. And then the second quote from the same introduction is, class distinctions do not die, they merely learn new ways of expressing themselves. Um, so I just want to look in the next sort of few slides just at the ways in which that coffin might have been kept open, you know, whether deliberately or um, sort of accidentally or implicitly or through a process of collusion um, over the post-war period and what might and what might then give us an idea of why a book written in 1957 might still be very important for, for, for people to read now. Um, you know, kind of doing my research for this book and also for a previous book I've written about council housing um, in Britain, um, I've kind of learnt a lot about the, the kind of the, the pillars of the post-war welfare state and about how the implementation of the welfare state sort of had the potential to really, really massively reduce class differences, you know, from a very, very, very wide starting point. Um, And to an extent, it was quite successful in reducing a lot of, certainly a lot of material and, and to an extent, economic differences. And that helped to reduce some of the disparities in experience between working class and and lower middle class and, and, you know, established middle class um, conditions and experience. Um, but a lot of the execution of the post-war welfare state was, was flawed and, and had sort of, you know, the unintended consequence of keeping class, um, you know, keeping a class system, if we can call it that, quite rigid uh, and, and certainly still very, 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 very present in society. And, you know, that's not a value judgment on the people who implemented um, and, and, you know, and came up with those pillars of the, the welfare state. It's kind of more a, more a comment on, on how, it, how things unfolded and then how later governments kind of kept fiddling about with that settlement, uh, often with the effect of making those class differences even more rigid. Um, so, I mean, one of those things that I talk a lot in the book about, about education, you know, is sort of the, the class, the class-ridden experience of education. Um, and certainly the, the tripartite education system that, that was established from 1944 onwards of uh, secondary moderns, grammar schools and technical schools uh, did a lot of work to kind of cement individuals' perceptions of their own ability through the 11-plus, whether you, whether you passed it or failed it whether you got into grammar school and did very well in grammar school or whether you got into grammar school and felt completely inadequate and dropped out and so on. 
um, and to an extent kind of sorted the, um, the school population according to the, a kind of an expanding uh, white-collar class, uh, to an extent a kind of ex- expanding uh, professional class, and a, and a sort of, uh, and a very large but kind of sort of shrinking working class. Um, but the fact that I think it was, uh, it was always called the brightest quarter, the, uh, the, the quarter of children who went to um, grammar schools in Britain in the post-war period. But, uh, you know, we still use this phrase today, bright, the brightest children. It always seems to be only bright working-class children who, who get to deserve to go to good schools, interestingly. Uh, and what, what was called then the brightest quarter was often really just, you know, the most middle-class quarter. <coughs> So, um, so education was another way of keeping the coffin open, intentionally or otherwise. Uh, and another was housing. Um, now, over a million council houses and flats were built uh, in the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars, um, but there needed to be, obviously, a massive, massive construction and reconstruction programme <coughs> of, of housing immediately after the Second World War. Um, and uh, Nye Bevan, as well as being the founder of the NHS, was also the housing minister. He was, he was housing uh, minister both for housing and for health um, in the 45 to 51 government. And he was quite obsessed with the quality of post-war housing, uh, post-war council housing, because he wanted everybody to live in it. He wanted council housing to be so good that kind of the need for private housing would just wither away. And like, you know... Like with the education system, only you know only six or seven percent of people go to private schools. He kind of wanted only six or seven percent of, if that, of, of people to live in, in private houses because everybody would want to live in council housing because uh, you know in his vision and his ex- in, in his in his initial execution, uh, council houses were absolutely massive. Um, they had very large bedrooms. They had two toilets. They had enormous gardens. They had everything that anybody would need or want out of a house. Um, but that sort of emphasis on quality was replaced by an emphasis on quantity. Um, shortly after the Conservatives gained power in 1951, and one of the reasons for that was because Labour partly, uh, even if only in small part, did partly uh, lose the 51 election because people weren't being housed quickly enough, and they just wanted to be housed. And uh, the, the quality sort of after 51 started to be um, placed secondary. To 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 to, size, to, to, um, uh, to quantity in terms of numbers of bedrooms, numbers of bathrooms. You know, um, flats were started to go up in larger number after 51, and that sort of that that emphasis on quantity started to gather pace uh, throughout the 50s and 60s, um, as Labour and the Tories started to compete with each other on who could build the most, who could build the most dwellings, basically. So the idea that nothing's too good for the workers was replaced with the workers should be grateful, basically, for whatever they get. Um, So that kind of Macmillan's um, notion of the property-owned democracy was built alongside increasing amounts of increasingly um, rushed council housing, uh, almost in competition with each other, really. Uh, And uh, an idea particularly propagated by the Tories uh, during the 50s, was the idea that, uh, that, that property should be the thing to aim for and that council housing is the thing that you do on the way. So almost like social mobility in housing form. Um, so another way to keep the coffin open, really, was that um, 
the sort of the growth of, of what you might call the sort of the middle class voice, really. Um, you know, immediately after the war, 75% or so of, of people were, could be defined as, as working class. Uh, but there was a sort of a large number of clerical and white collar and technical jobs that were starting to become available. And so people were becoming economically and partially socially mobile, whether, they were, whether they'd gone to university or not. Um, and that sort of growth of the growth of affluence and the growth of um, the possibility of buying consumer goods and so on sort of started to create a much larger sense of a dominant um, mass middle class rather than, you know, the middle class or the upper middle class kind of being dominant through kind of, you know, the BBC voice or so on, or, or, or things like that. Um, there was a sort of much larger, there was a much larger sort of... Um, a sort of aggregated power began to develop in an enlarged middle class. Uh, but in spite of this, you know, in the late 50s and, and throughout the 60s, there was kind of, there was a flowering of what, you'd call the, of what you might call the working class voice um, in culture and the media, um, you know, starting perhaps with the uses of literacy, uh, but also through, you know, mass popular and, and very well written uh, TV programmes like Coronation Street um, and The Kitchen, well... I think it's quite under contest these days, isn't it, the, the term kitchen sink drama, but, but what was called, um, you know, in my youth, kitchen sink dramas from the, the, the 1960s about... Um, that really sort of showed that, that, that working-class people were individuals and had uh, the same sort of combination... You know, the same sort of variety of motives in any, you know, in any one given set of circumstances that a middle-class person might previously have been expected to have, um, you know, in films like A Taste of Honey and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and uh, Billy Liar. Uh, so that now, in retrospect, seems to be quite a sort of brief flowering, really, um, a time when sort of regional accents and a working-class perspective uh, and a regionally northern perspective was more, was more available to people as a kind of cultural resource and as a source of... Um, as a source of succour for people who might be experiencing similar uh, anxieties about, about their class and similar anxieties about their community and similar anxieties about their own process of social mobility. Um, and then, because I think partly because of this enlargement of the middle class and sort of coupled with an apparent sense that... And Hoggart writes hugely about this in The Uses of Literacy because in the late 50s people were starting to think, you know, because rationing was ending and more and more people were starting to be able to afford things like televisions and days out and sweets and things like that, there was a sense that uh, we were all moving to a general classless state. And I think what in this country is meant by a classless state is a state in which everybody's quite middle class, really. It's, it's where sort of class, you know, middle class, mass middle classness is kind of like the point is where, the point where class is meant to become invisible. Um, but it did feed into this myth that the coffin of class was, was now shut. And so people like Hoggart or his, his contemporaries, Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall, were kind of believed to uh, be you know, very radical or outdated because class didn't matter anymore or, you know, or, a, or a class warrior for, for, for no particular, you know, to, to, to no, uh, particular effect, you know, that people people were moving to this classless state kind of without their, you know, without their hindrance. 
Um, so, I mean, I can see that sort of in, in the courtroom and in, and in sort of public debate, this was meant to be liberating because, you know, you, you didn't have to know your place anymore, you know, and you didn't have to be compromised or, or kept in your place of origin. But what it did have the effect of was of kind of, was, was of kind of writing the, the, the continued reality of working class life and the fact that it was still a, a very large um, working class kind of out of public debate and out of history. So, in the book, I sort of, uh, I kind of tie myself up in knots, really, trying to, <laughs> trying to please everybody and please nobody at the same time, really, because we're talking about class, and class is a really, really contentious subject, rightly, because um, it has these, you know, it has these extraordinarily strong effects on people's self-perceptions, on their confidence, and it has these massive effects on their actual life in terms of what they're able what they're able to uh, afford and what they're able to uh, get towards in terms of their own wishes and dreams for themselves and so on but you know where does where does a kind of uh, a consciousness and a um, a desire to stay close to and uh, you know stay in a strong, positive relationship with your place of origin, where does that become tricky if you do become occupationally mobile, socially mobile, geographically mobile, um, and, and, and also economically mobile? Who is to say that you have to stay in your place? You know, Are you automatically a traitor if you do end up leaving the place where you were born? Do you have to leave the place you were born in order to, be, to become socially mobile? If you become socially and occupationally mobile, why can't you then go back to, to, where, you're, to, 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 to where you were raised? Why does that often become a difficult thing? And I do try to look at all those things in the book. You know, is it possible to kind of move on towards things that you've always desired for yourself and maybe what your parents have always wanted for you um, and what your family have always wanted for you without kind of abandoning that sense of your, 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 your community, your class community of origin. Um, so problems arise in that sense, you know, um, for people who, you know, who they, they, they move away from where they were born, you know, both socially and geographically, you know, in order to go to university, for instance, and, you know, and then to go on to different kinds of jobs that they, would have, that they wouldn't have been able to do had they not gone to university. Because of all these value judgments, you know, there are kind of economic value judgments, you know, it's got to be a good thing to be socially mobile because it usually means you earn more money. And, of course, it's a good thing to earn more money because you're making more money for the state, you know, or you're making more... You're a wealth... You're becoming a wealth creator. Uh, there's moral value judgments according to it's good to be socially mobile because it means you've played by the rules and you've got on your bike. Um, and it, it's, it's socially a good thing because, of course, you know, it's, it's the received wisdom that the, you know, that the standard state should be to be middle class, and obviously that's fantastic. Um, so all of these value judgments are given to different jobs and to different regions and neighbourhoods and to tenures of housing, you know, in this very sort of classed, class-ridden society that we have. Um, and certain jobs, particularly professional jobs and particularly knowledge jobs, you know, i.e. ones that need a high level of qualifications, um, are more highly esteemed uh, 
currently in society than others because of one of the reasons if, uh, uh, one of the reasons for that is because they help you to uh, accumulate both social and cultural capital and having high levels of social and cultural capital that is knowing lots of well connected people uh, and quite powerful people <clears throat> and cultural capital in terms of <coughs> knowing about a very wide variety um, of kind of cultural products and cultural resources and cultural names, uh, you know, sort of names and places to drop into conversation and so on. All of these things ultimately help to feed into further occupational mobility and therefore higher levels of pay. And so social and, cap social and cultural capital feed into economic capital ultimately. So, you know, when does becoming, when does writing a book about being socially mobile um, become part of the problem, really? And, and, and is it part of the problem? Because, you know, a personal testimony is based on the writer's perception of events as much as the actual factors that they're describing, the events that they're describing. You know, somebody's perception of, 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 of the, uh, you know, two different people's perception of the same event can be completely different, and that's problematic in itself. Uh, and in, the con in that context, in the context of writing about class, those kind of gradations of class, because there isn't just upper-middle working, there's about 75 million gradations within each of those classes, and as Mike and his team have showed us, there are at least now um, seven... Um, Kind of, I think they are sort of experiential classes as much as they are as much as they are kind of socially, socially and culturally and economically bound classes. Um, you know, other people's perceptions of your place in that class system as much as your own, and the way that the person writing about it has internalised that perception, all have an effect of, on how you write about on, on how that person writes about class. And so you have to sort of, you know. Somebody reading, a, somebody reading about class has to take into account the person, you know, thinking about the person who, who wrote it and sort of how, um, how classed, you know, and how class-ridden their own perception of things has been. So that reveals, that reveals quite a basic problem, really, which is that um, not enough people who are, at the time of writing, at the time of writing uh, their testimony are actually working class at the time that they're writing that testimony. You know, it's often somebody can come from a working class background, but then either in the process of coming to get to a position where it's possible to write books or um, through um, having had, you know, a sort of um, a kind of socially mobile career, maybe in a completely different field, uh, and then decides to write a book, but only through having amassed sort of enough confidence and social and cultural capital to write that book. It just means basically that, that, that the, voice, the voice of writing about class kind of remains middle class, really. And writing books anyway is quite a middle class activity in the sense that, as I say, it takes confidence in your ability to do that. You know, I'm going to write a book and it's going to get published. You know, I mean, that's a, quite a ridiculous thing to, to say of yourself, really, ultimately. And the, the, the social capital and the cultural know-how to become, to become published, because you can write a book, but it might not get published, and therefore it won't get read. It has to be published in order to be read, and, and it requires lots of unpaid time. You know, you've, you've got to be able to... You've got to be able to, to afford to do it. Uh, you've got to be able to kind of defer, you know, whatever 
you know, uh, you know, whatever sort of economic gain you're ever going to, if any, gain you're ever going to get from it, you've got to live, you've got to be able to live at the time that you're writing the book. And so you've got to have backup and you've got to have some source um, um, of income or just some way of eating while you write the book. And what does that reveal about class? So that reveals again that, that you know the voice that you know the, the writing voice that the kind of the sociological voice or, or whatever is 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 quite class ridden, uh, you know, and the cultural and media sort of conversation is is very skewed, extremely skewed uh, towards middle class perceptions and sort of presentations through uh, the la- the type of language that's used, um, you know, in terms of broadcast media, the accents in which those views are expressed, um, and those perceptions of you know, basically middle-class perceptions of all the events and all the things that are going on around uh, the, the people who, we, who are best placed to use that voice. And, of course, you know, that middle-class voice can be acquired, it can be learned, but it takes a culture, acculturation into an education system which kind of seeks to reproduce that middle-class voice uh, and particularly requires usually going going into further and then higher education and then possibly, you know, even postgraduate education and so on. Basically staying in education as long as is humanly possible. Um, and uh, sociologists and, um, and um, anthropologists such as Diane Ray and Gillian Evans and Paul Willis, uh, who wrote a fantastic book in the 70s called Learning to Labour, um, have all argued that working-class school children resist that acculturation into middle-class norms because the idea that you need to be acculturated suggests that you weren't good enough in the first place. And, of course, people don't want to feel like they weren't good enough in the first place. They don't want to feel that they have to change in order to be accepted. But if you don't resist that acculturation, if you feel sort of like there's quite a good fit between you and that acculturation process, does that make you one of them? Even if you started out uh, working class and you acquire this middle-class voice through, through that acculturation and education process. Um, so there's lots of fantastic contemporary and older personal testimonies of, of the, the sort of the class experience, the lived experience of class. And one of the most recent is by Lisa McKenzie, um, who is a research fellow at the LSE with Mike. Um, and her book, Getting By, is an ethnographic study of uh, personal testimonies uh, to the effects of class on individuals and communities of people, and it's an incredibly important book for that. Uh, and older books um, include Richard Sennett, also at the LSE, uh, Richard Sennett and Jonathan's Cobbs, The Hidden Injuries of Class, and I still think, I still think that's an incredibly powerful phrase. Now, for, for a book title, it's a book title that I carry around in my head all the time, The Hidden Injuries of Class, it says everything to me. Um, and another study by um, uh, Coates and Sil- I can't remember their first names. I'm sorry, Coates and Silver, uh, a book about uh, about um, uh, working class lives and, and people um, living very, very marginalised and, and forgotten lives in extremely um, impoverished circumstances in Nottingham in the 1960s, um, at a time when it was believed that you know the mass working class was getting very affluent and was starting to sort of enjoy the goods that everybody else was beginning to enjoy. So that's why it's called the Forgotten Englishman because it just showed that there that there were millions of people still living in extreme poverty in a time of mass affluence. Um, 
Another great book is uh, Brian Jackson and Dennis Marsden's Education in the Working Class, uh, again from, I think, 1960 to 1961. And that was um, a book which interviewed lots and lots of parents and school children effectively about um, their experiences of being put in for the 11 plus or taking the 11 plus or going to a secondary modern and what it revealed about their what it revealed about their attitudes to that um, that sort of uh, rigidly classed education system and and how far they were sort of um, prepared to kind of go go along with it or to resist it in order to kind of stay who they were. Um, and another great book is um, Carolyn Steedman's Landscape for a Good Woman, um, which I think is very influenced by the uses of literacy, but um, also really, really rails against it. Because <laughs> Carolyn Steedman um, is an historian, and um, I think she basically believed that Hoggart was very nostalgic and, and really sexist about the experiences of his mom and his nan um, in Leeds and you know I happen and a lot of people happen to disagree with that I don't find it remotely nostalgic but she felt that Hoggart um, had sort of overlooked the experience of the experiences of people like Steeman's own mother for instance who was a very uh, an extremely aspirational uh, woman a very poor but very aspirational woman who was sort of quite ob- quite obsessed with an idea of living the good life and living a nice life um, and I'll just go through these uh, quickly, really, because it's getting a little bit off topic, but they're books that are very important to me, which are testimonies of class in fiction. Um, and I think Zadie Smith is, is pretty much my favourite contemporary British novelist, because I think she writes about class and also the kind of the crossroads, the crossroads of sort of class, race and, and, and neighbourhood um, and cities uh, in you know, in, that, in an incredibly complex and kind of multifarious way. So I'd recommend reading any one of her novels because they're all fantastic about class. Um, and uh, Raymond Williams, who, of course, is better known as a kind of cultural theorist, um, but uh, wrote, I think, more than one novel, but Border Country is certainly the novel of his that I would recommend because, again, it's about that experience of do you leave the place where you came from? Do you change utterly how far... How far do you become, do you stay connected to, or how far do you become estranged from you know the, the people and the things and the relationships of your kind of previous life if your life kind of changes utterly as a result of social mobility? Um, and Billy Lyre is a is a fantastic um, sort of document of what it's like to be a grammar school boy at the end of fif- at the end of the fifties. Um, you know, it kind of it, it, it's kind of like the humorous end. Of a sort of of a sort of class testimony, but it's it's nonetheless nonetheless uh, no less important for that. Um, and Howard's End is, is is a classic is a classic book about class. Only connect, only make you know make these connections. Realise that all people are human. Um, and finally, uh, Eleanor Ferrante, uh, the current um, currently sort of raved about series of Neapolitan novels, which is about the relationship between um, two women who grow up um, in the back, back streets of Naples together. And one is incredibly socially mobile and moves to the north of Italy. You know, north and south of Italy is very different, but, but you know, north and south um, 
is a kind of opposite, is the opposite to the north and south of England, but one moves to the north and, you know, has an incredibly sort of bohemian bourgeois life and, you know, her best friend, um, you know, remains socially immobile and living in very difficult circumstances and how their relationship is tested by the, um, uh, by the divergence in their experiences. Um, so those books... That the non-fiction and the fictional testimonies of class all tell us that to live class at the wrong end, I'll put wrong in quotes, um, the economically devalued, denigrated, marginalised end is always a constant struggle against visible and invisible forces. And yet, they also show that people are individuals and individual people have different responses to the same set of events and do have... Uh, agency and complex motives, whether rightly, you know, whether they're good motives or not so good motives, beyond that sort of the role that they're meant to have as kind of inevitable historical agents of, you know, the coming revolution or so on, um, and that, that also that life is, is is unjustly difficult, but pleasures, you know, the pleasures of life within those circumstances. Um, are both, you know, very various and manifold, but are of absolute value um, in their own context. You know, they make those pleasures make life livable. Um, so shortly before the end, some I'm not going to say these words out loud because I feel a bit silly. But if you just want to read them off the slide, um, these lyrics from the song "Faster" by the Manic Street Preachers. Um, this song came out in 1994. Uh, the year I went to university. In fact, it came out about a month, I think, before I went to university. And it was kind of my sort of battle cry, going to university um, as an 18-year-old who'd lived almost exclusively under the Tories. And it really was, it really did feel like, we're going to university and we're going to wipe the bloody floor with you, Lost, because, <laughs> because that, you know, that, that idea that a truth that washes that learned how to spell, it's basically, you know, you can take, people so far and you can push them so far and you can say that they're stupid and you can say that they're never going to do anything with their lives and we're just going to show you we're going to learn how to read books and then we're going to do something with the knowledge we've got from those books um so back to social mobility um social class in the 21st century as i've just mentioned um and will atkinson's in search of the reflexive worker are both really really important contemporary books that i think sort of bring out this process of self-blame and self-recrimination in people who are trying to achieve social mobility and what people um, experience in terms of the emotional costs um, of believing, of taking in this idea, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, this widely propagated idea that it's up to you to move, to move up and that... Um, you know, there's only one kind of social mobility, and that's upwards. You know, there is a version of social immobility that's acceptable, and that's if you're already middle class. Um, and so people come to believe that social mobility is just a matter of doing the right thing and playing by the rules, um, and not a sort of gatekeeping process whereby, you know, basically a few are let up at a time. Um, so I think I've got... Yes, I've got two, sli I've got two slides left, and I just... In the book, I don't really say much about what I think should be done about it. <laughs> I, think I spend so much time trying to explain, not, not explain, or I think explain to myself more than anything what, you know, what, what that lived experience of class um, 
is like trying to, to go as far deeply as I can into that and, and so much about that psychological uh, effect of social mobility that I don't really say so much about you know, what needs to be done or what can be done politically to, to change the situation we have now. But just a few reflections at the end, really. Um, we've had a commission on social mobility um, for about the last five or six years. Yeah, I think it was established by the coalition or at the very end of the last Labour government. But I don't think any commission on social mobility is really worth anything in terms of policy making unless it properly talks to people and gets proper testimonies to socially mobile individuals and socially immobile in, socially immobile individuals for that matter that, that shows and recognises the psychological impact of, of, of class in, in a class-ridden society and the emotional cost of social mobility to people who are expected to just sort of keep on at it until they reach the right class. Um, and also that currently, of course, you know, no more, you know, as, as strongly as ever, and, and certainly as, uh, you know, uh, more strongly than, uh, more strongly than ever, that, that, that people's ambitions for themselves and, and their families um, in working-class neighbourhoods are subject to this kind of uh, weirdly uh, sort of complicit uh, dual attack from from elements of, of sort of right-wing right-wing discourse and, and, and left-wing discourse. There's either the kind of sponges and strivers narrative where you have to be where you're either one or the other or the idea that you basically you have to stay you have to stay where you are in order that in order that you can again you know in order that you can sort of fulfill this um historical role and also that you can sort of fulfill this idea that you can then use to attack the right by saying that social mobility is now come to a full stop, which it hasn't really. I mean, there's always a certain number of social socially mobile people. It's just that, you know, through political, various political levers, it's made either slightly easier or slightly more difficult, depending on which government is in at the time. And again, you know, I think elements of right and left in public debate do still, uh, and I think un un unwittingly complicit... Um, in airbrushing the experiences of working class people uh, for different reasons but, but, but with the same effect which is to kind of neuter and dismiss the voice of um, working class people because it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit in and, and working class voices are not yet numerous enough um, to, 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 to counteract the, the overwhelming do dominance of, of middle class voice. And so, you know, my conclusion... Um, is that, 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 you know, obviously social mobility is, is made easier for people, you know, psychologically, emotionally, maybe not so much, but certainly is made technically easier in a context of material security. You know, secure housing, better pay, um, better pay for households that enable, their, that enable their children to be able to concentrate and not constantly have to be worried about, the, about their, their um, household situation. And obviously job security... Um, and it's only a combination of, of that liberation from financial worry and the fear and the experience of stigma among working class people as they experience from, from outs, both from outside and, and sometimes from within, um, within among um, people you know, living in the same area, you know, both, both direct and inverse snobbery. 
and the political pressure on individuals to, to succeed on narrow terms. Only a combination of all those things will let people actually live on, on terms that they decide for themselves. Um, and I do believe that higher education, higher and further education, have a vast role to play in that um, kind of in, in that liberation of people being free to decide for themselves, you know, what they want to what they want to achieve in their lives and, and, and what they want to achieve, both for and within their communities. But only if it returns to being free at the point of use, which again stating the obvious, unfortunately, but uh, I wish it were so. Um, but um, that, that's all I've got to say for tonight. But thank you to Mike again for asking me to speak. Thank you, Lindsay. You covered an amazing range of issues there. And I think really what's, what's so important is to open up the question of social mobility beyond a kind of very, what can become quite a narrow technical concern to open up big issues about politics and culture and the social. And you do that really, really well so we have half an hour or so for comments and questions from the floor um, and we might take some bunches of two or three and then let Lindsay respond. Is there anyone who wants to start up? Hi, could you say whether and um, if how um, you changed going from a working class council estate to now being a lecturer at a university? I shouldn't have pre-prepared answers to, the, to this sort of thing, shouldn't I? It's about the psychological effect and about changes. Yeah. But in a very, in a quite abstract way. Right, okay. Yeah, okay. I, I so, see what you mean. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of expecting... Um, yeah, I'm expecting people to kind of um, be, be conversant with some of the things that I talk about in the book. And, of course, you know, you know people, people won't be, but it's true. I mean, um, I, I, as I say, I was, I was educated in, you know, in a sort of entirely working-class environment with all the um, sort of expectations that that entailed and all the resources that that entailed in the schools that I went to. Um, and um, it was a point where I, th I think sort of go, go, into, go into a non-selective um, state school in a working class area in the 80s was kind of like almost the nadir really of non-selective education because, because a, lot of you know, a lot of financial resources uh, were, were ploughed into, uh, you know, kind of all schools really, but, but were... Um, ploughed into to, to schools like the one I went to, you know, from the mid-90s onwards. Um, you know, a lot of it not state funds, obviously. A lot of it was done under the sort of the, um, the academies programme. Um, but in terms of the kind of the paucity of resources and the paucity of uh, expectations um, on, on, on us as, as pupils... Um, kind of really, really affected me because um, I, I was quite... <laughs> I was a very sort of nerdy child, really, and very swatty, and I really, really uh, had this idea. I had a very distant idea of sort of getting to a place where I could just be nerdy all the time, I suppose, really. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> uh, I... 
I, I did do well in my GCSEs. Uh, very few of us um, in my year at our school um, got, you know, what now would be regarded <coughs> as, as standard, uh, you know, the standard five GCSEs. Uh, although I must point out that, that, of course, you know, there's still a huge sort of class differential uh, in, the, in the numbers of people getting five A to Cs in their GCSEs, you know, depending on depending on the sort of the, the neighbourhood and the, the you know and the, 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 the economic profile of, of, of the pupils at, at any given school. But 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 in, in you know in my, in my time, you know, it was about it was five to ten percent of us every year. Only five to ten percent of us got got five GCSEs, and I did get my five GCSEs, and I was the only girl. There was three or four of us who went to the sixth form college. Um, on the other side of the borough, you know, in the affluent side of the borough. Uh, and by the time I'd done my A-levels, I was the only person left from my school because the, the, the other three were boys and they all dropped out because, effectively, of culture shock. Uh, we went from an incredibly under-resourced um, school um, where it was sort of deeply unpopular to be nerdy and... Um, went to this sixth form college where it was quite normal just to sort of get an A in everything. And the, the, cult, the, the, you know, the, the, the culture of this new sixth form college, it was, it was a very, very high expectations, not, of, not just of academic performance, but just of life in general. Life was there for the taking. Things were there. You know, the, the things of life were there for the taking. You know, I mean, people had sort of plans and expectations and ambitions for their lives that, uh, you know, I just could never, ever have imagined up to the age of 16. And, you know, I was kind of... So I went from this environment where um, I'd sort of just sort of powered on and sort of got through. I thought, oh, if I get my GCSEs and I get, if I get to the sixth floor, it'll be fantastic. Everything will be fantastic. That'll be great. I'll have done it. You know, I'll, you know be... That is it. You know, that is the goal... And there's no, you know, that the, 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 there's nothing that I can conceive of that will be as difficult after that, you know. So I get to the sixth form to start the A-levels. And, of course, the difficulty of the A-levels is, is the last, you know, ends up being the last of my worries, really. Because, you know, to go, you know, to be one of the only people from, you know, from the north of the borough, from, you know, from the estate in the north of the borough, going to the sixth form college in the south of the borough, where everybody was from the south of the borough, you know, immediately you're a fish out of water. Um, and, you know, it was things like, you know, when I was growing up, you know, nobody, you know, this idea of sleepovers, you know, this idea of sleepovers, nobody ever had sleepovers. You know, you never really went past people's front doors. You spoke, you played out on the street, but you never went inside people's houses. And then, you know, you go to sixth form college and everybody's inviting you around to their house for sleepovers. And, you know, they all have massive houses, you know, with great big attics at the top. And, you know, and their mums and dads don't mind if you stay up till three o'clock in the morning. And all this was kind of inconceivable to me. And, um, you know, going to, you know, things like going to Glastonbury and things like having interest in single issue politics. You know, this idea about boycotting Nestle or, you know, being a member of Greenpeace and stuff like that. All this was new to me. All this was kind of hit me in the face. Uh, and it was a kind of, a, I suppose, a sort of um, an assumption of participation, an assumption, a, a, you know, an assumption of entitlement to participation in society, like you had a voice. You know, people get involved in single issue politics because they believe they have a voice in that particular area or they can use their voice. And I just wasn't used to that idea of having a voice. And, you know, and so the, the difficulty of the A-levels was kind of almost secondary to that. But it was also part of it as well because I was 
I'd passed 5G, I'd passed, you know, got, you know, sort of seven or eight A's or so on in my GCSEs, but was still utterly unprepared for the difficulty of A-levels and for the, for the amount of abstract, for A, for the amount of abstract thought and the amount of um, verbal reasoning that was required for A-levels. We just weren't prepared for it in any way whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the ways in which I changed, but... but I try and describe in the book the way the process of, of becoming acculturated into that new environment uh, was really, you know, kind of bizarrely difficult, but it sort of it, it sort of got me to a point where I was then able to go to university and not feel like a fish out of water at university. It was a very, very powerful sort of bridging process. And so the acculturation process, had I gone straight from the school where I went to and, got, and went straight to university from there, I would have dropped out in the first term. I, I just wouldn't have hacked it. But that was a very, very crucial... And, and that's how I sort of started to, become, started to become really, really interested in these notions of social and cultural <coughs> capital. Because it, it was... It was, it was it was learning a whole new set of cultural signals that was the, you know, that was kind of like the deal breaker, really. Yeah. Okay, we have two. Uh, let's, let's, let's take two or three questions. I think you are next, yeah. Uh, hi. Um, it's a sort of whimsical question, and it's also a bit off-center. So wh- when I was young, I was a very good reader. So by the age of four or five, I was already familiar with large parts of the Bible and the Quran. And, you know, I used to listen to the imam and the priest. And it struck me that whenever they talked about the poor and about charity, they were sort of defining class and the movement between classes. Mm -hmm. And they were also saying there was a certain inevitability of class. So this was the Bible, or oh, God, right. saying class will always exist. It cannot be overcome. And what struck me when I was young was I wondered if the upper class, if the rich people, at whatever age, you know, at a later age than mine, when they took heed of that, if that is what they believed, if that then became ingrained in them, Okay, we'll take a couple more. Couple more sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa, yeah. Um, God, I hate these. Um, I just wanted to ask Lindsay, really, is, uh, I know that you spoke a lot about Richard Hoggart, um, and, you know, I feel exactly the same way about him as you do. You know, the book that you read, that you can actually read, and, you, you know, it almost brings tears to your eyes that that somebody has recognised these small things yeah, that no yeah. one else recognises. And I was just sort of hit by what you said about um, universities and how higher education's got a role to play. Mm. And I think I'm going to be really polemical now and say uh, Richard Hoggart wouldn't get through now. That, that plain language, that plain and beautiful working-class ways of expressing ourselves would not get through in a neoliberal university now. And when you were talking about writing a book and that being a very middle-class thing to do, um, 
academic books now are sort of famously written in extremely obscure language and they don't want people to actually be able to read them. Um, and so it's not about wanting people to read them, it's for people not wanting to read them. If you have a book as an academic in plain language that sells really well, people are very snooty about that. <laughs> and actually, um, it's better to have a book that doesn't sell, but no one can read. <laughs> So get ready for the snootiness in this room. <laughs> One more over here. Uh, yes. Behind. Uh, <clears throat> Simon Partridge. Uh, Lindsay, I really welcome um, <clears throat> the sort of critical space you've opened up. I don't come from um, what you describe as the working class, but for the last ten years I've been exploring... Uh, the pernicious psychological effects, effects of having been sent to boarding school at six. And there is a growing movement of people who, are, in actual fact, are critically deconstructing that sort of acculturation as well. Um, I think what is very difficult for both parties here is to find a space which isn't kind of self-denigrating in a way. One almost has to apologise for doing this and I haven't read your book yet, but I bought it. And um, what I'm hoping for is, is we can find some common ground to get beyond some of these pernicious effects. And I'd just like to end up with one uh, statistical fact, um, which I think is almost unknown. It's not the 6 or 7% who go to private ed education. It's the less than 1% who go to boarding schools who occupy between a third and 50% of all the influ influential places in the cabinet, in politics, and in the professions. And we need to cast a much more critical light on the role of boarding schools in our society mm -hmm. and, in actual fact, um, in the psychological effects of people are sent away to these total institutions mm -hmm. for 10 or more years. Thank you. Do you want to respond to any of those points? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, the first uh, <coughs> the, the, the first question um, is is in, is asking really about about whether whether we've all of us or just the power or just the, the extremely rich and powerful have internalised an idea that that, that class exists for a reason. Sorry. All of us, of course, we read the same things. Whether you are poor yeah. or rich, yeah. Get the same talk. Right, right, I see. I see what you mean. Oh, crumbs. Well, <laughs> um, well I, I suppose really just in the presentation I was trying to give really was um, just about saying that, you know, the, the, the absolute importance of, of um, you know, of a variety of, of, of um, voices and a variety of contributions and a kind of a social diversity of contributions to, to give you know, a, lots and lots of different perspectives on on basically the the, the same the, the same society that we live in because we have ex, we have experiences of the same society that are so exi uh, that are so different from each other that there may as well be different societies. You see what I mean? But but I, I, I see I see 
what you're actually getting at is that, is that uh, if, if the Bible says if the Bible says that the poor will always be with us and we all read the Bible, then do we, are we all internalising the idea that the, that the poor will always be with us? Yeah, no. Well, I mean that that's a really that's I mean that that's a, that's a philosophical comment that you've made as, as much as a, as much as a question. So uh, you know, it's a really good point to make. I, I haven't got you know a, uh, you know a kind of a, a worthy reply to that really. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, to Lisa's um, comment. Um, it's interesting that I hadn't thought of it, you know, I suppose because, because I'm not actually an academic, you know, I mean, um, I'm, I'm a visit, I've got a visiting fellowship at, at John Moore's university cause I've just started a PhD actually. I'm, 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 a, I'm a kind of PhD newbie. Um, but, but I've also got a visiting fellowship at, at, at um, uh, John Moore's university in Liverpool because, cause I, I live in Liverpool and it means I can use the library. <laughs> and, uh, I suppose that's another gatekeeping process, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm using the university library, not the public library. Well, in addition to the public <laughs> library, but that relationship between jargon and neoliberalism, I, I hadn't actually thought of that before and, and that there are <laughs> there are books that I avoid like the plague and there are certain writers and obviously I'm not going to you know name them because I will just become persona non grata in the academic community yeah exactly but but there are there are books and there are writers and, and certain academics that I do avoid like the plague because I haven't got a clue what they're going on about and I, and I, I just think to myself well crumbs you know I'm, I'm not daft I'm not daft, and I've got a wide vocabulary. Um, I'm not obsessed. I'm not, you know, kind of obsessed with plain expression, and yet I still find this completely impossible to understand. Uh, but I always feel a bit. I always feel. I'm not sure what to think. We you know what to make of that, and and, and the idea that so so really you're saying that there's a kind of there's a relationship between jargon and neoliberalism because it because it it it, it makes smaller and smaller and smaller the number of people who can understand it. And, and that there's a kind of a sort of there has to be a sort of Nietzschean individual striving to understand impossible texts. <laughs> it's also, it's also a, a new level of the way that class reproduces itself as well. You know, it's keeping keeping people out, keeping knowledge away from yeah, people. It's yeah. Very, very sharp elbows again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah, school, yeah, yeah, boarding school acculturation. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I mean, when I was saying, you know, when I was talking about the pernicious effects of class, you know, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't automatically saying you know, the pernicious effects of, you know, of, of you know, of, of you know, of, of being, of, of, of being from a particular class. You know, I think class, class affects absolutely everybody, and, and of course, that's a very, very. Um, obvious way of creating uh, you know to institutionalize people uh, in an environment that then sort of acculturates them into you know the assumption of power is a way to create a powerful group of people isn't it yeah um, and um, I didn't know that fact about you know the the the, the, the extent of the overrepresentation, particularly of boarding people who went to boarding school no, 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 no. The, 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 I mean, you know, the, the, the figure that goes to private school is quite widely known, isn't it? But not the figure that goes to boarding school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, thank we you. Have one, one other, yeah. yeah. Uh, hi, thanks for the talk. Very interesting. Um, I haven't read the book yet, so uh, I will do. I have read Estates. Um, I guess my question uh, is really 
I wonder whether social mobility is actually the kind of most important focus here, or whether rather we shouldn't be looking at how social immobility has become so pernicious and so damaging. And I mean, if we look, you know, to this, up to the 60s, into the 70s, we see, you know, a working class with its own cultural capital. We see working class people in steady, secure <laughs> employment uh, with their own networks and contacts mm -hmm. and knowledge. And obviously what happens in the 80s, which is your lived experience, is the decline of a traditional working class industrial economy. And that's also, of course, your experience of Chelmsley Wood, mm. I assume, uh, from, what little, from what I know of it. Mm. Uh, but that experience could be replicated over council states up and down the country, oh, yeah. where you had people, you know, a, a respectable working class um, with, you know, relatively uh, secure lifestyles. Um, and... What, 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 I, what, I, what I'm missing here, at least, I haven't read the book, as I say, what I'm missing is actually the other side of the coin, which is actually just how, how uh, for want of a better word, damaged the working class have become uh, in recent decades. Right. Okay. Um, for somebody who was going to read your book who comes from the experience that you came from is there the same um, I, you quote the Manic Street Preachers is there a, a, a graspable enough pop culture that somebody can use to educate themselves and see ideas wider than perhaps they've been exposed to previously but is there that, now? Is there now? Right, yeah. One more yeah, over there. Um, is this... Sorry. <laughs> is this... Uh, um, the idea of class... Obviously, this is um, wider than, than a, a sort of United Kingdom or British or English uh, notion. Uh, to, to what extent is this notion of class, uh, does this apply across other Western economies? Uh, or is it, a, is it a particularly British or English uh, obsession uh, and what do you think might account for that? Is it for you, though? Do you want to answer some of those? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, in terms of social immobility, um, you know, in, in the book I do actually write that it's... It, I do actually use the phrase social immobility in the sense that, you know, it, it's perfectly acceptable to be socially, immo socially immobile <laughs> as long as you're middle class. Uh, that social mobility is, is sort of position totally, you know, targeted totally at, at people who aren't already uh, middle class as an invitation to, to become middle class. Um, but, I mean, in terms of talking about, you know, I mean, I mean, when you say, you know, a damaged working class, are you talking about, are you talking about in terms of, you know, the, the, the damage to the sort of the, the, the political and cultural fabric um, of working class 
communities, you know, as a result of, you know, um, you know, heavy industry being... Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, when you when you said that, you know, like, you know, the the sort of the specific the specific specificities of, of of you know my experience of of growing up in the eighties, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a place where you know that where there was a heavy industry to lose in the first place, and I know that for people who grew up at sort of at the same time as me in places where there once had been, you know, one giant major employer. You know, I mean, for instance, my husband's from Birkenhead, where, the, you know, the one giant major employer was Camelhead Shipyard, and that went, you know, basically, you know, it, it employs, you know, it once employed 10, 20,000 people, now it employs 800 people, you know. And... Um, I, th- I think you know, sort of his his experiences and my experiences have, have sort of similarities and differences for that reason. Because you know, where we lived, it, it you know it had never been unusual. It had never been unusual to have casualised work because if people didn't work, if people didn't work um, at you know either the Jaguar, you know the, the Land Rover factory or at the Longbridge factory. You know, which was the you know the sort of the best source of skilled work, or the or all the associated factories, you know, to do with the car trade. Um, then, pe- then people, you know, had always worked in quite casualised in quite a casualised fashion. So it wasn't it wasn't an entirely uh, new thing. And because you know, because Chelmsford was only built at the end of the sixties, you know, it was kind of it was just entirely you know the sort of the economy. Uh, was entirely associated with that kind of um, casualised work, so you know it was it was sort of too too new to be a place that had been one way and then became another way. It was just sort of always a certain way, sort of thing, you know, because it's a mile or so from the NEC, and so you know, um, and the airport, and so so many people I I knew, uh, so many parents of the people that I knew while I was growing up, and so many of the people I grew up with now, you know, work you know working routine. You know, routine, not very well-paid jobs at the airport uh, or at the, the the hotels associated with the NEC or at the NEC itself. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Mm. <laughs> um, sorry. Yes. Um, yes. Um, now, um, I think that's a fantastic question um, <laughs> uh, because um, I mean, I'm completely showing my age here, but I mean, when I see the top forty now, I think. God, none of these songs are about anything. Um, and I look at the, I look at the current top forty in relation to the top forty of the top of the pops, the episodes of top of the pops that they're currently showing on channel BBC Four, and it's currently up to 1981. Top of the pops on BBC One, and so Ghost Town is number one. Number seven is One in Ten by UB40, which is a book about uh, a book. What am I talking about? A song about. A song about being unemployed and a song about the experience of being, you know, margin, you know, marginalised in, you know, Birmingham under Thatcher. You know, and you, Ghost Town is number one, an experience about marginalised in Coventry under Thatcher. Um, and these, these, these songs are in the top ten. You know, you've also got, um, you know, Spandau Ballet, who, you know, to all intents and purposes seem like quite a silly band, but but are always sort of very... Um, very, very upfront about the fact. Very upfront about the fact that they, that they were sort of, uh, you know, they were working class kids made good, 
sort of thing, and they wanted to be as flashy as possible for, 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 for that reason. And so in terms of that kind of graspable pop culture, I mean, you know, to me as an old, you know, as a 40-year-old old person, I really feel like it is, it is just it is not there to grasp. And I mean, in part, in part, I think, you know, so much of that has got to do with well there's the end of the end of top of the pops you know you don't get you don't get bands on top of the pops anymore it's not like you know i watched the manic street preachers uh, in 1994 just before i went to university you know dressed in basically gorilla you know gorilla soldier clothing singing that song faster and mentioning you know um uh, you know arthur miller and uh, norman mailer on on top of the pops um and 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 that's not there anymore as a kind of as a vehicle of grasp you know as you say graspable culture but but also i mean the, the sort of the canalization of radio because you know i i only listen to six music now six music is channel indie six music is 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 you know you, you it's a digital station you listen to uh, you know, you listen to songs that may or may not, now I think about it, often don't have very much of a political content either, but, you know, at least are interesting to listen to. Um, you know, and, um, you know, so, so you know, Channel 6, uh, Radio 6, uh, 6 Music is, is, you know, is, is the sort of, is where bands like, bands like the Manics, who were once played on Radio 1, are now played. Um, and... Um, you know, in the, the Pet Shop Boys, it's very difficult to imagine a band like the Pet Shop Boys existing now and to be not just played on Radio 1, but to have posters of them in, you know, in the middle of the toppest pop magazines, you know, kind of, you know, men in their 30s, <laughs> men in their 30s as, you know, sort of teenage pinups and and so on, you know, who we were always going on about the English National Opera and so on. You know, I mean, all these things seem quite inconceivable now. It, it's, it's true, and, uh, you know, I, I wish it were different. But but I do I do talk, I do again talk in the book about the possible reasons for why there was that why there was that sort of flowering of political <coughs> voice around that time and why that's not there now or appears not to be there now. Well, no blame here about other countries. Oh yes yes mm-hmm. uh, can you can can I defer to Mike <laughs> for that? Yeah. I mean I think there are this, I think there are distinctive things about the UK experience. <coughs> The idea that Britain is a class-based society is, is unusually strong here. It doesn't mean class doesn't exist in other societies. It does. It takes a different cultural form um, and in which you, know, you can, you know, particularly the kind of power of, of working-class identities, even the sport, is something distinctively British. But we somehow, I think, feel kind of obsessed by class and it's kind of our history and our baggage and it's uncomfortable baggage at one level, but it's also things we feel as part of us. It's a very complex relationship we have with class. You know, Arguably in the US, issues of race and slavery have that kind of more pivotal power for thinking about identities. But anyway, these, these, are, these are open questions. Mm. I'm aware of the time. Is there one last question quickly? Or, uh, okay, yeah, one last question, right. I'd like to follow up on this, this gentleman's question. Uh, Wait for the mic. Uh, by the way, I really like talking. It's not very moving, lots of lovely examples. Um, so I think we're all agreed that the centre of our in a very pernicious effect, and that, um, and that in general, social mobility, right, it's a bit of a fuzzy term, but it, it's unjust and it also makes no economic sense. Mm. Picking up from a gentleman's question, uh, there are a number of studies done by the OECD on social mobility. As I understand it, um, of the 20-some odd countries, Britain, America, and Italy, have the least social mobility. So, Mike, could we have further discussion about the point you raised about? What can we learn from some of, the, some of these other OECD countries that have got much greater 
Doing right. <laughs> well, you, you propose education, and it seems to me that that's a great idea. But well-intended governments for the last 75 years, as, as I see it, have tried to use education to improve social mobility. And one way or another, it's worked a bit, but not a whole lot. Mm. We need to be trying other things, it seems to me. Mm. I think possibly that's <laughs> possibly a question that Mike uh, yeah, I'm not sure. can answer. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, there was a lot of debate about these comparative differences in social mobility and those different perspectives. The OECD one was quite influential, but certainly, insofar as the U- US and UK being distinctively having low rates of mobility, I don't think you can just de- detach that from the fact that these are very unequal societies compared to most societies. And I would say the issue is we've got such big gaps in Britain between the haves and the haves nots, more than many societies, and once you have that, the stakes of the tensions of mobility get bigger. So I think the issue is to try and find a way of creating a less, equal, a less unequal society. Okay, it's two minutes to eight. Uh, can, we, can we thank Lindsay? And she's be signing copies of her book outside. So if you haven't got it yet, or if you, even if you have and you wanted to sign it, please wait until we're happy to do that. Okay, thanks to Lindsay.